1: guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa.
0: Hi, Mandy. How are you?
1: I have been better. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> As have I. We have not seen each other in a
0: while, and we've both ended up with the crud this week. Just- yeah.
1: I don't think we're the only ones though. I've seen a lot of people lately saying that they had something. And really it wasn't even that severe, but it's just been like the longest lasting mild illness I've ever had. So yeah, it's very, uh, I'm so over it. It's very irritating. But yeah, so if we sound different and (laughs) and, um, worse um, rather, then that's the reason why. Yeah, we're both kind of getting over I guess this is just like a little spring cold. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah.
0: Like after 200 episodes, like our audio quality just absolutely hit the pits. Just, just really, really yeah. got bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what you're hearing. We will, I I am so excited to edit this because I'm sure there won't be any coughs or oh, yeah. nipples or anything. <laughs> I've already told myself like when Mandy coughs, I'm going to go ahead and get a cough out of the way so we can like <laughs> in sync our coughing. <laughs> So before we get started, we wanted to tell you guys real quickly about a podcast we're really enjoying called Killer Queens. It's two sisters, uh, Torella and Tori, and they have a ton of episodes. It's a very conversational podcast, um, but it's filled with 90s nostalgia and true crime in different cases. They just finished um, a two-part on the Murdoch murders, that murder well, I should say murderers in Georgia that they're still like trying to wrap up and even see if there's more crimes going on. So they actually just covered that. I'm really excited to finish listening to that. I'm about halfway done with it.
1: Yeah, and they actually just published their 200th episode and they did that one on the life and death of Steve Irwin, which sounds super interesting. As you know, I love animals. So I really want to check that one out. And you can catch new episodes of Killer Queens every Tuesday wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay,
0: Mandy, I'm very excited about this week's story? That's not I'm the right word. I'm
1: excited too. I mean, <laughs> it's these stories just keep getting weirder and weirder. I don't know. I feel like exactly. all year this year, we've had some amazing stories and we've kind of opened up with the same thing where we're like, this one's crazy. This I is know. even weirder. Yes, it just keeps getting weirder. So
0: next year, can instead of a uh, word-a-day calendar like I put into the universe, I'm going to ask for a thesaurus. And really, just the only page I'm going to have opening to is like excited or weird. I Those like two we... are the only ones I need words for.
1: How many times have we said we're going to get a thesaurus?
0: Oh, darn. Have we said that before? <laughs> I blame
1: cold medicine. <laughs>
0: it sounds like something we would say. I just don't remember.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, we have talked about some pretty wild and shocking affairs that have led to murders on the show before, but there really is nothing quite like the story we have for you today. This one is pretty insane, and it involves a lot of sex, drugs, and maybe rock and roll, or not. I don't know, maybe just the first two, but I am convinced. Good gotcha. chat. Yes, I am convinced that Helmut Buxbaum thought of himself as a rock star, or at least he seemed to have modeled his entire life after the stereotype of one. Helmut was just as unique and funny as his name. And by funny, I don't mean funny ha, ha I mean, he was a really funny guy, always getting into some kind of unsavory activity that embarrassed and disrespected his entire family. You see, he had a lot going for him, a lot more than most people ever will have going for them. He'd managed to find love at the age of 18 and eventually married a woman named Hannah Schmidt. Together, they built the perfect life. They had five biological children and one adopted daughter. And they had amassed a fortune through owning and operating several nursing homes and eventually even a hospital. But none of that could stop Helmut from pursuing his deepest desires, and those desires eventually led to a senseless murder.
0: It was a comfortably cool morning on July 5th, 1984, when Helmut Buxbaum and his wife Hannah noticed a broken down car on the side of Highway 402 near London, Ontario, Canada. Two men stood beside the blue Chevy Nova and appeared to be stranded so Helmut slowed down to see if he could help out. Very Canadian. So Helmut gets out of his car, walks up to the stranded car and he takes a look under the hood. One of the men from the stranded car walk up to their vehicle and tells Hannah that his belt is broken and asked her if she had any extra pantyhose that he could use, you know, maybe to hold up his pants. And Hannah tells the man she doesn't have any extra pantyhose, but after he walks away, still being Canadian, she decides to take off the ones she's wearing and gives them to the man.
1: That's like the weirdest thing. Like, can you imagine a strange man coming up to your car and just being like, do you have any pantyhose? I know. And and I can tie my pants on with? Yeah. (laughs) It would
0: probably be the more different Uh, Uh, A request you get that day? Yeah, that's not one you hear every day. I think at that point, I'd be like, my car's broken down. That's going to be my priority here. And maybe not my pants falling down. (laughs) I'll just sit down. (laughs) So a short while later, a police car pulls up, and Officer Philip Medlin emerges. And so Helmut and the two men in the uh, broken down vehicle tell the officer that they have been able to fix whatever the problem was. So the officer goes on his way, and so do Helmut and his wife, Hannah. But later that same day, a trip down the same highway would end very differently. Helmut and Hannah had a very long history between them by 1984. The couple had met back in 1957 when Hannah was 21 years old and Helmut was 18 after Helmut's mom actually urged the two to get to know each other. Although they met in Canada, both Helmut and Hannah had come from European nations Helmut was born in Germany in 1939. He was actually baby number 10, the last and final baby that was born to his parents, Otto and Louise. Otto was a fundamentalist minister in wartime Germany, and his mother stayed home, which uh, makes sense because with 10 children... Somebody's got to be home. Yes. (laughs) Someone has to be home. So Hannah was born in Poland in 1936, and she grew up with two siblings, Her father, Albert, was a farmer, and her mom, Adelie, was a homemaker. Although they were not from Germany, Hannah's parents considered themselves to be ethnic Germans for all intents and purposes. They were also faithful to their Mennonite religion, which this is our second Mennonite uh, story in... In a very short time. Yeah, but like (laughs) over five years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We've had two almost back to back. So by the end of 1950, Hannah's family had immigrated to Canada, and they were living in Kitchener.
1: Meanwhile, the Buxbombs were still living abroad. Helmut graduated and started working in Vienna in 1957, while his parents, Louise and Otto, emigrated to Canada and began a new life there. Once they were in Canada, the Buxbombs met Ottilie Schmidt, who invited them over for lunch. And this was a lunch that went well, and so the Buxbombs family became friends with the Schmidt family. Helmut's mom really couldn't have been any happier that the Schmidt family had entered their lives because she was wanting nothing more than for her son to find a woman who would take care of him. And she thought that the Schmidt daughter, Hannah, fit the bill perfectly. Now,
0: is this because he's the baby and she's like, 10th one, got to get him out of here. Right. This I mean, one, yeah, i
1: <laughs> I know. I wonder if she had that same desire for all of her children or if it was just this one that she was like, yeah. I have to find somebody to take this one off my hands. <laughs> exactly. So Helmut's parents soon persuaded him to move to Canada and live there as well, and in December of 1958, he arrived in North America. He immediately got a job as a miner's helper and started spending his free time just learning how to speak English and working on saving a lot of money. In just two years, he had worked his way up to being the assistant plant engineer, and he used his financial success to buy a house for himself and his family to live in. Even though Helmut's mom was really gung-ho for him to link up with Hannah, her efforts to get them together to even have a conversation were unsuccessful for an entire year. But finally, Helmut went over to Ottilie's house to visit Hannah, and they actually had a conversation. They talked about their time living and growing up in Europe, and they made plans to meet each other again at a Baptist retreat in August. This retreat ended up sealing the deal for the couple. They became inseparable on the trip, and Helmut even proposed. Hannah liked Helmut a lot, but a marriage proposal at this stage was a little bit too much for her. So she asked, you know, what's the rush if we really feel these things about each other? You know, a right. lifetime is a lifetime. We don't have to get married after, you know, taking one trip together and knowing each other for five minutes. So he actually told her that his mom really wanted them to get married, which I'm just like, wow, that's not the most romantic way to propose to a woman but ladies in 2022 (laughs) we call that a red flag yeah for sure so hannah told him that she would pray about it and she would get back to him in a month over labor day weekend in 1960 hannah finally had her answer she agreed to marry helmut
0: once hannah had agreed to marry helmut they decided to convert to mennonite and he took to studying the religion very seriously some might say it was too seriously In particular, Helmut was drawn to the scriptures regarding the role of a woman in a marriage. He specifically liked the parts about women listening to their husbands. In numerous letters to Hannah, he would even write about these desires, saying things like, you're going to be a good little wife, and you'll listen to your husband uh, whenever he's with his family. So very like that sort of thing is what what he's really taking from these scriptures. you mean we're not listening
1: to him play the guitar and sing to us? (laughs) Uh, That's not what he means. (laughs) I think you can. That seems optional. But even
0: my husband, I'm like, could we stop playing guitar? There's a lot of noise going on. As for Hannah, she didn't seem to be against this style of marriage for herself. In one letter, she writes him basically to say, I wouldn't say anything against your plans. I want to be your wife. I want to obey my husband. So it seems like they're really a match made in heaven. And so they get married on June 10th, 1961. Shortly after the wedding, Helmut's parents moved back to Austria and real life really set in for the new couple. Helmut worked as a draftsman and he and Hannah bought a house. They turned the house into three separate apartments and they lived on the main floor and then rented out the basement and the top floor. Helmut continued his education and he earned a Canadian high school diploma in 1963 before he went on to attend Waterloo Lutheran University. He would later graduate with a bachelor's of science. Things were really going well for Helmut as he made this life for himself in Canada. So shortly after he graduates from college in 1967, his brother Otto tells him about this guy who's a nursing home operator, uh, this guy Jack Wall, and he has this business proposition for him. So the details were that the government of Ontario was giving out grants to people who were willing to operate a nursing home for long-term psychiatry patients. So Helmut's brother proposed that, hey, you've got some land, let's build Let's build a nursing home on this land he and Hannah had bought back in 1966. So there's 28 acres of land in Kamoka that was really just sitting there. Um, so Helmut took Otto up on the idea. So the couple took out loans, sold their rental properties, and, you know, really put everything into this dream they now had. The Bucksbaum family moved up to the Westmont District of London, and they got to work building this facility. Helmut and his brother Otto did much of the construction on the building. It was actually a 32-bed facility, but by the end of 1967, which wasn't very long, the home was ready to open. So within two weeks, this place is fully occupied, and it wasn't long before they were able to expand the facility to have 90 beds. They called their new company, Kamoka Nursing Home, and Helmut was the head administrator, and Otto, his brother, ran the day-to-day stuff. So, Helmut's parents were unhappy in Austria at this time, so Helmut said, Hey, come back and you'll have jobs and a home here as well. So, after seeing this early success in the business, the brothers begin looking for opportunities in other towns.
1: But things at home with Hannah weren't quite as rosy as they were in the business. A big issue the couple had was with their sex life. And I hate to put it so bluntly, but it's a huge factor in the story and it really just can't be avoided. As we said before, the couple eventually had six children, five that were biological, which might lead one to believe that the couple had a pretty healthy sex life. But on the contrary, there were some major root issues surrounding sex in the Buxbaum marriage. Hannah had been raised to believe that sex was strictly for the purpose of trying to have a baby, while Helmut, on the other hand, well, he wanted to have sex for fun, too. Another thing that was eating away at Helmut was the disappointment he felt as time went on, and he started to realize that Hannah wasn't quite as obedient as he hoped she would be. He hated it when she brought up her frustrations, and he saw it as an act of defiance towards him. The more kids they had, the busier, of course, Hannah started to become with her motherly duties, as well as church and the family business. She just had less and less time to spend doting on Helmut, much to his dismay, he ended up hiring two servants to help Hannah with her other duties so she could have more free time to spend on him. After being married for six years, Helmut was feeling frustrated with the situation, and he began having affairs. He hired a sex worker for the first time that he went outside of his marriage, but he felt so guilty afterwards that he told on himself the next day. At this time, Hannah was pregnant with baby number three, and she was due to give birth anytime. She forgave him for the infidelity and assumed that this would be the only time he would ever do something like this. Unfortunately, she assumed wrong. In 1969, the Buxbombs opened their second nursing home, and with this business success came increased opportunity for Helmut to find women to have more affairs with. The same year the new facility opened, Helmut had a highly inappropriate relationship with a 17-year-old that worked in the kitchen, and she got pregnant. Helmut confessed to Hannah that he had gotten a teenager pregnant, and Hannah felt the only right thing to do in the situation would be to support the mother until she got married to someone else. So Helmut paid child support until then.
0: While their marriage continued to struggle under the pressure of Helmut's infidelity, the nursing home business really thrived. In 1970, the couple opened another nursing home, and around this time, Helmut and Hannah decided to build their dream home on the Kamoka farm. At some point, the couple eventually converted from being Mennonite to being Baptist. By the end of 1973, the family owned a total of six nursing homes. At some point, though, Helmut resumed having affairs despite telling Hannah that he would not cheat on her again after he got this 17-year-old employee pregnant. But not only did he not stop cheating, he continued to cheat with nursing home staff members. If any of the women ever complained about his pervy behavior and the harassment that they were receiving at work, they were asked to resign from their positions. Things got so bad that even the couple's church pastor found out about these affairs and has a talk with Helmut regarding his crude sexual behavior. Hannah was a very devoted and determined wife, and she was really willing to do whatever it took to see to it that her marriage stayed intact despite its many problems. In 1975, she asked if Helmut would see a sex therapist and marriage counselor after she found out that he'd been having a a year-and-a-half-long fling with some random hitchhiker he'd picked up. And the way Hannah found out about this, well, she actually caught a venereal disease, and she obviously knew it came from the only person she was sleeping with, which was her unfaithful husband,
1: Helmut. Oh, my gosh. That just breaks my heart when that happens to people.
0: It does. It's really sad, and she like keeps giving him the benefit of the doubt. Keeps giving him the church is now involved. Like she's doing everything she possibly could. Right. That isn't her responsibility to do. This is his problem. But you know she's really trying on her end, and he's just bringing home a VD for her. Apparently, right? Yeah. The counselors that the couple worked with really weren't too fond of Helmut. They found him frustrating and super rigid, and just very, very difficult to work with. He was always more concerned in these sessions with having his point of view and saying that he was right than he was actually about changing things and making his marriage better. Helmut actually told the counselors that the affairs he had been having weren't all his fault. He said that Hannah refused to do various sexual acts with him, which of course led to his cheating. And please hear the uh, sarcasm in my voice through my cold because that is so gross that he would say that. So Helmut and Hannah met with the counselor separately for a year, but it didn't really seem to help a whole lot.
1: Helmut continued to sleep around, and by 1979, he had contracted urethritis 14 times, and he developed an unusual growth on his little guy. To make matters worse, Hannah suffered from a collapsed uterus, which made sexual activity even more awkward for this couple. She eventually had a hysterectomy, but the surgery didn't help fix the problem, and her desire for sex was even lower than it was before. In 1979, even though Helmut really had plenty on his plate to deal with, he decided to get involved in something else, doomsday prepping. <laughs> There's just so much happening. Yeah,
0: it's a lot of like... um, <laughs> what are your hobbies?
1: It's like somebody asked him and yeah. (laughs) yeah, And this crazy wild sex life and now doomsday prepping in the mix.
0: (laughs) I will say that one makes more sense based on all the other things
1: he's doing. He's going to meet a doomsday, but he, this is a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So he spent $250,000 to build a fallout shelter that he had equipped with living accommodations, a cooking facility and doomsday supplies such as tobacco, alcohol, and other bartering goods. I guess he just figures as long as he has enough stuff to trade, then he doesn't have to have right. anything that's like actually worth something. <laughs> that's like maybe the only smart thing I've heard this guy do yeah. so far. I yeah. mean, that's one way to do it, right? Make sure you're yeah. the guy that has the tobacco and alcohol and there you people go, people will give you things. Um, so he also stockpiled guns and ammo. And he decided to do all of this after doing a little bit of light reading. Uh, He read a book about neoconservative ideas of economic survivalists. And this book told him to do all of these things, of course, as well as invest in gold and deposit money into Swiss accounts. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. In 1980, Helmut found more new sexual partners. One of his affairs during this year was with a nursing home nurse who he ended up letting move into one of the houses that he and Hannah owned. When Hannah found out that this woman was living in the house, Helmut told her she had to move out. The church found out about this incident, and they suspended Helmut's membership, but Helmut was still not deterred. He continued to meet with sex workers, and his risky lifestyle actually progressed into even worse things, like using drugs. It seemed like Helmut was really on a fast path to nowhere, but shockingly, the nursing home empire was absolutely booming, By the early 80s, the company was worth $25 million and included nine nursing homes and one private hospital. Helmut was so successful that he was able to buy out his partners, but they all thought of it as more of a ruthless takeover than just him being really successful and having the ability to do this. In the end, Helmut owned 58% of the company, while Hannah owned the other 42%.
0: Things within the marriage really could not get any worse at this point. Hannah was desperate for Helmut to snap into reality and just become this better husband and father. Unfortunately, though, things did get worse. On April 17th, 1982, Helmut woke up in a hospital room, unable to move or even recall how he'd gotten there. Hannah stands over him and explains to him that he's had a stroke and the doctor's saying that he's going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Earlier that day, Helmut had been suffering from a migraine, so he made an appointment to see an osteopath at 4 that afternoon. So the doctor sees him, takes his neck, rotates it, and Helmut feels a crack and a stabbing pain that eventually subsides, and he leaves
1: the doctor's office. Okay, that's terrifying. I know. That's Um, like my biggest fear when it comes to like – because I've gone to the chiropractor before, but personally – and everybody's – like I know a lot of people who swear by it, but that is one reason I just – cannot go to the chiropractor because I am always worried that they're going to snap my neck the wrong way. They're totally not going to do that.
0: Like <laughs> I believe that a hundred percent, but I understand the fear, like hearing something like this. So I had this crazy, like all these female issues forever and ever. And they ended up after I had a lung collapse, they like said something was sticking out of my rib cage and they were going to manipulate it. That's what they kept calling it, manipulate it. And it wasn't a chiropractor, but it was something and I truly don't even know who it was at this point. It was the weirdest thing I've ever had done. They're like pushing things, closing their eyes and moving stuff. I'm like, am I being a part of a seance? And I don't (laughs) even know. So like, I was like afterwards, like counting my ribs. I'm like, did they take my ribs out? I have no idea what happened. It was very (laughs) weird, but yeah. So Mandy and I support you chiropractors, but like, please, this story scares us. Just don't hate us for (laughs) saying (laughs) that. But later on around six that evening, so just a couple hours later, Helmut and his son Philip are at the gas station and Helmut's standing there pumping gas. Suddenly though, he loses his footing, he falls backwards, and luckily Philip catches him and helps him get to the ground safely. And so then Philip calls emergency services and an ambulance arrives to assess Helmut. He actually had partial blindness, loss of feeling on his left side, his speech was slurred, and he was barely conscious when they arrived. Whenever he got to the hospital, he actually passed out. So when Helmut came to he couldn't really remember large chunks of time, including much of his marriage to Hannah. And after four days in the hospital, he suffers from another medical event when he had two epileptic seizures within an hour of each other. And the bad news just kept on coming. They learned that Helmut's right carotid artery had been dissected just before he had the stroke, which they believe could have been caused when the osteopath
1: manipulated his neck. Could have,
0: could have, could Could have, have, could have. have. (laughs) We are not saying that that's what happened. I would love to believe
1: that that's not what happened, but oh my gosh, that's terrifying. We just don't
0: like reading about it. That's what it is. (laughs) And we will get back into so much more of the story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. It's common knowledge that companies all over are having a tough time hiring the people they need. Recently, the gym I go to actually had to close on Sundays because they simply do not have enough people to cover the shifts that day. But it's not just small gyms. There's the Starbucks near us that closes at four now. And we've all noticed other companies that are short-staffed because they just can't keep up with the day-to-day work plus the hiring process. Workable is here to help all types of companies do just that.
1: There are now 46% more jobs being posted than before the pandemic, but 44% fewer candidates that are applying to each one. So finding the right candidate and hiring them quickly is paramount. And Workable is here to accelerate the process for you from finding your candidate to hiring them. The way it works is that
0: Workable helps cast the widest net possible by posting your jobs to more than 200 job boards. And then with just one click, they help you evaluate and hire quickly while using modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures. Plus, they'll help you automate those repetitive tasks like scheduling interviews so you can spend your time doing what's important for your business, like making hires.
1: So whether you're hiring for your gym, your coffee shop, or your engineering team, Workable is exactly what you need to hire the right people fast. Start hiring today with a risk-free 15-day trial. If you hire during the trial, which many do, it won't cost a thing. Just go to workable.com to start hiring. Workable is hiring made easy. Managing money can be hard, and
0: juggling subscriptions even harder. Don't do it alone. Get Truebill to help you out. Truebill is a new app that's here to work for you. It helps identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you either don't want, don't need, or you simply forgot about. And if you think you aren't spending that much on subscriptions like I did, you'd be surprised. In fact, on average, people save up to $720 a year just by using Truebill.
1: Companies make it so easy for you to sign up for subscriptions. Sometimes it's literally just a click of your phone but canceling those same subscriptions can be a real pain. But Truebill makes the process incredibly simple. You can do what I did and link your accounts and Truebill categorizes your expenses and lets you know what subscriptions you have and with a simple tap of a button, Truebill can cancel your unwanted subscriptions.
0: Plus, you have a Truebill concierge who can literally take care of canceling those unwanted subscriptions you don't want to call in for. For example, I was paying $15 a month for Sirius XM, and then I realized, hey, Melissa, you're only listening to podcasts. Why are you paying for this? Since Sirius actually makes you call in to cancel your subscription, and I hate phone calls, I gave Truebill a little information, and they were able to call and cancel it for me, taking one more thing off my list of things to do, plus saving me about $200 a year.
1: If you still aren't sure, check out what real user Jennifer B. has to say. With your help, our family has saved $587 a year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com moms. Go right now. Truebill.com moms. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com moms.
0: And now back to the episode.
1: So before the break, we were talking about Helmut and all of the crazy things that he has gotten himself into. He has just had a stroke and has been told that he's going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So the prognosis was actually pretty disappointing. Helmut had lost significant cognitive function, and he tested just 93 on an IQ test when his previous IQ score was 118. It was noted that he specifically seemed to have a decreased ability to think creatively, abstractly, or logically, and that his right frontal and parietal lobes had been damaged. This significant injury led to Helmut being unable to work, and the doctors told him that it would be at least a year before he could even consider going back to work. But they warned him that he would never recover to his full brain capacity. In addition to these intelligence impairments, the stroke triggered a total change in his personality and he really felt like his life was over. At this point, he started bargaining with God, promising that he would wake up and walk the straight and narrow and just stop having affairs and start appreciating these important things in his life. Hannah stood right by his side, just as she had always done, and she did everything she could to help Helmut recover some of his lost memories of their life together. She was truly committed to his recovery. Helmut was able to go home from the hospital 10 days after his stroke. By some miracle, he was able to walk out the door and didn't need the wheelchair that they had said he would need forever. And Helmut took that as a sign that he was going to be just fine. So he returned to work a few days later, despite the doctors also telling him not to work for at least a year. He was even ready to try and resume his sexual activity within one week of being home. Good Lord, take a nap. (laughs) I know, just give it a rest. But unfortunately for him, things didn't really work like they had uh, before the stroke and he struggled to get an erection. Helmut's doctor gave him a prescription for testosterone to try and help, but otherwise told him that it was just a matter of time and letting himself heal. Even though Helmut had this issue going on, he still kept
0: trying to have affairs. So the changes in Helmut's personality were impossible for those around him to ignore. Just because he had returned to work didn't really mean he was really there at work or really fully functioning while he was there. For years, Helmut had this habit of spending up to 16 hours a day at work, but after the stroke, they were lucky lucky to even see him 16 hours a month. He was really impossible to get in touch with. He kept a very unpredictable schedule. He would be there some days, not there some days. It might not be there for a week at a time. So even more concerning with Helmut's behavior as it pertained to the company's multi-million dollar worth he started going against all good business practice and using the company money as if it was his own personal fund. So he actually exceeded the company credit line by $200,000, spending $60,000 in August of 1983 alone, which oh my gosh, $200,000 in 1983, the year I was born. I Yeah, that's a lot. Don't remember it so well, but I'm thinking that would have really changed somebody's life. That is so much yeah. money. So the majority of his purchases were gold, which we assumed was you know what he was helping stockpile his fallout shelter with, along with tobacco and all those other things. So Helmut went from being this very hygienic, clean-cut man to being someone who hardly ever bathed and uh, wore the same clothes for several days. So it was a total change in personality and appearance for him. So his memory continued to deteriorate, and he was increasingly forgetful being unable to recall important dates or birthdays and he would do things like forget to pick up his kids or follow through meeting people with you know that he had plans with and he frequently would just get confused in the middle of conversations and was very unlike himself very different than he had been before the stroke so with all these challenges and several aspects of his life spiraling apart you'd think that maybe Helmut didn't have that much time to think about his sex life but it was certainly still top priority in his own mind. And his sexually fueled behaviors somehow got even worse than they had before. First, he stopped attending church altogether and he started talking about crazy things with his son, Philip, things no kid should hear from their father. He would tell him that he was upset with Hannah, who is Philip's mother, uh, wouldn't do certain things sexually, and that he loves sex workers. What? I know this kid (sighs) has seen and been through so much. You know, he was there with his dad when he had this stroke and, you know, all these things like I can't even imagine what what he's gone through. Yeah. In December of 1982, he takes his sex addiction to another level when he joins an escort service, listing his work phone number on the application as his contact number. You can't get more brazen than that. No, my goodness. And he sleeps with dozens of sex workers in a matter of just a few months. And that eventually graduated into him hiring multiple sex workers at the same time for group sex. Helmut spent a lot of this time with them, uh, really speaking poorly about his wife.
1: Which just makes me so mad because Hannah is a saint for putting up with any oh, of yes. this. Like, so it, just to, to just him having anything bad to say about her is just One like- One negative thing to say about awful, her. Just yeah. Absolutely. So now that Helmut was full swing into his lifestyle, it wasn't long before another one of his past demons reared its head again, and that was drug use. He started using cocaine and making even more irrational decisions, like offering numerous sex workers thousands of dollars to get out of the business and have his baby. Why? He has babies. He has more than one baby. I don't understand. Like, why would you
0: do this? I'll never understand that. Like, you'll hear that even with people having affairs. Like, their kids will be like 20 and they'll be like, but I want to have a baby with you. I'm like, sir, do you remember what that time (laughs) in your life is
1: like? Yeah. So, one woman, though, Debbie, actually did become his full time mistress and he gave her $1,600 a month and lavished her with gifts and took her on exotic vacations. But Soon, the sexual tension that was there between them kind of fell flat, and Helmut ended up breaking it off with her because she was no longer fulfilling his needs, which I guess the only one is the one uh, that he's concerned with. At some point after this, Helmut discovered a new hangout spot. It was a gentleman's club called Kelly's Bar, and this bar also happened to be the hangout for a local cocaine dealer named Robert Barrett. Helmut ended up buying a quarter ounce of Coke from Robert every few days at the cost of $750 a pop, and he eventually began injecting the cocaine, and he started throwing these wild drug parties in a hotel room that was across the street from this bar. He really had no concern for the consequences of his actions or care that the only people um, that paid him any attention were the people who wanted drugs from him. At this point, Helmut was pretty out of it. Robert Barrett was taking advantage of the situation and even ripping him off on the coke deals. He was only giving him half of the amount of cocaine that Helmut had paid for, and he was keeping the other half for himself. Robert also hooked Helmut up with sex workers, and before long, Helmut was involved in another affair. This particular woman, Dawn, must have had something special about her, because it was she who Helmut confided a big secret in. He wanted to get rid of his wife Hannah once and for all. Helmut went so far as to tell Dawn that he even planned on paying someone else to do it for him and even asked her if she knew of anyone.
0: Somehow Helmut managed to hide his drug addiction from Hannah until January of 1984. She became concerned when she noticed bruises on his arm and when she asked him about it, he admitted that this bruising was from injecting cocaine. It was confirmed a few days later when Hannah actually found cocaine in Helmut's pants while she was doing their laundry. Hannah was furious and she forced him to flush the coke down the toilet and to tell her who he was getting the drugs from. He immediately gave up Robert Burnett's name and promised not to buy anymore, which, oh my gosh, this guy, all he does is lie. He, of course, lied to her. He buys more. And in April, Hannah finds cocaine in his pockets again. Maybe if he did his own laundry, he wouldn't get caught. That's one of the many things. That's asking a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So this time he tells her that their son's karate teacher sold it to him. So whether or not this was true, Hannah insists that Helmut stop speaking to him and ordering the staff at their company not to send calls from these two men through to Helmut. Hannah was desperate at this point. She wanted her husband to get help for his drug addiction, but at the same time, she is dealing with so many other issues within their family as well. The family tried to set up numerous interventions, but nothing worked and Helmut continued using cocaine. Hannah took desperate measures and got him admitted into Pine Rest Christian Hospital for an intake assessment, but upon arriving, they realized that Pine Rest was not actually a rehab center, but a psychiatric hospital instead. The doctor there acknowledged that while Helmut wasn't psychotic, his words, he could still stay there for a four to six week treatment because he suspected that Helmut may have a manic depressive disorder. Um, Helmut was not keen on staying there, and he, of course, protested the entire thing. And he compromised with Hannah by saying he'd check in for a little bit longer the next month, and so they go home. So, like, for Helmut, crisis
1: averted. Right. So in early 1984, Helmut was reconnected with his old pal, Robert Barrett. That was his dear friend that used to rip him off for cocaine. (laughs) That's how I'd love to describe (laughs) all my friends. Right. So Helmut hired Barrett to come work for the grounds on his Kamoka property that he owned with Hannah, but when Hannah found out about this, she was obviously really upset about it. Helmut claimed that Barrett wanted to get his life turned around, and he wanted to help, which this is like a blind leading the blind situation. Like, that's great for Robert Barrett. Yeah, if he wants to get help. But I don't think Helmut is the one to be helping anyone with those types of problems. No. No. So the reason uh, Barrett was actually there, though, of course, was not because of that. Um, It was really because he got busted with some of Helmut's cocaine, and he got fined. So instead of paying the fine, Helmut told Barrett to come work it off as a groundskeeper. One day, Hannah had enough of this, and she told Barrett that if he didn't leave her husband alone, she would call the police. Soon after, Barrett was fired from the groundskeeper position, but that didn't stop him from seeing Helmut. They actually met up that same night at a bar, and they met up again the following day on May 24th. During this May 24th meeting, Helmut told Barrett that he was seriously looking for a hitman to kill Hannah. He said that he was willing to pay $25,000 plus expenses, plus give him a job at one of the nursing homes, plus a $10,000 bonus if Hannah's body wasn't found for at least a year. Barrett agreed and came up with the idea that he could go to Florida to find a hitman and then he could hide out there while the murder was being committed. He wanted to be as far away as possible to avoid getting caught for any involvement in this. So Helmut said okay, gives him $5,000 for the Florida trip, and this is something that's going to come up again later.
0: I hate how quickly people are like, yeah, Florida, you can find a hitman. Yeah. No problem. Just go ahead and head there. Everyone knows that. I've never (laughs)
1: tried, but you know.
0: If you wanted to apparently it's it's I guess well so. known. Yeah.
1: <laughs> apparently we're in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> so Barrett wasn't the only one though who set up an alibi for himself. Helmut also made plans to be out of the country when the murder took place. He was gone from May 28th to June 3rd, but when he arrived back, he was shocked to see that Hannah was actually still alive. He ended up finding a voice message from Barrett talking about how he needed more money to secure the contract, so Helmut ended up going down to Florida himself to hand-deliver $2,000. Helmut told Barrett that he had 12 days to get this done because the Bucks Bombs were actually supposed to be leaving on a trip to Europe, so he wanted this taken care of before then.
0: Unlike in some of our stories where hitmen will literally murder someone for a bicycle or like a 12-pack of Bud Lights, in this case, it actually wasn't that easy for Helmut and Barrett to locate a hitman. Way to go, Florida. By June 19th, they still don't have anyone to do this hit, and the Bucks Bombs went on their scheduled trip to Europe. While they're gone, Barrett returns to Canada and continues to look for someone local to pull off the murder. And what better place to go looking than his old stomping grounds, Kelly's Bar. There, Barrett met Pat Allen, who expressed interest in the contract killing, but said he wanted $5,000 up front. Barrett wouldn't agree to that, but he did agree to give a smaller down payment and then $10,000 once Hannah was killed, and then $60,000 later on after everything had calmed down. And with that this plan to kill Hannah is really in motion. Helmut and Hannah returned from Europe on July 3rd, and Barrett was anxious to talk to Helmut about the latest developments. He told him all about Pat Allen and this deal that he'd made with him. And so Helmut provides photos of Hannah and gives Barrett $5,000, which he was supposed to give to Pat. However, Barrett ends up keeping the $5,000 and giving Pat 200 measly dollars along with a picture of Hannah. Keep in mind, Barrett has been uh, screwing him over for cocaine for years, so this should not be a surprise (laughs) at all, how easy it is to pull one over on Helmut, I guess. So these three men met in person to finalize the details of this murder plot. The idea was they were going to make this look like a kidnapping. They were going to take Hannah's jewelry, write a ransom note before killing her, and then they planned to mail the ransom note from the U.S. to help avoid being traced, So they decided Highway 402 would be the perfect roadway to do this on and they found this spot that like has this deep ditch and lots of overgrown trees and shrubs and a large covered drain. So Helmut and Hannah plan to drive to the airport to pick up Helmut's nephew the next morning so he told the men he'd be on the highway around 830. So the plan is for Barrett and Alan to be pulled over on the side of the road with their hood up, you know, pretending that they're having car trouble. And then the idea is Helmut would stop to help and then Pat would quote unquote kidnap and kill Hannah. That night, Helmut had dinner at home with Hannah and then he goes to his fallout shelter where he injects cocaine and contemplates a plan. Meanwhile, Barrett and Alan ask two other men, Gary Fashey and Terry Arms, to join in and help with the hit. This is so many people that know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, good, Yeah, That's how people get caught, but why are you bringing in so many people?
1: Yeah. So the next morning, as planned, Helmut and Hannah set off down Highway 402 when they came upon the broken-down Chevy Nova. After pulling over and getting out, Helmut braced himself for what he knew was about to happen. But then the plan was foiled when a police officer pulled up and came to a stop to check everything out. With this unexpected turn, everyone was kind of thrown off the plan, so Helmut and Hannah went back on their way and picked up Helmut's nephew and then continued on with their day. All the while, Hannah had no idea that she was supposed to be killed during that stop. Later on that evening, the couple, along with Helmut's nephew, Roy, who was now in town, were once again driving down Highway 402. Once again, they saw a car on the side of the road, and Helmut stopped to help. But this time, when the car stopped, one of the stranded men on the side of the road came right up to the car and grabbed Hannah out. The man was wearing a mask over his face, and he wasted no time getting right to the point. He leaned Hannah over a guardrail and shot her in the head and arm with a 32 caliber gun. The killer left Hannah face down in the ditch next to the highway and took off with her purse. All of the men from the stranded vehicle drove off together, leaving Helmut and Roy on the side of the road to deal with whatever aftermath would come next.
0: The two men started waving down other drivers on the road, and eventually they got the attention of a trucker named Colin Lawrence. Colin stops to see what's going on, and immediately upon hearing that a woman's been shot, he goes down to the ditch to check on her. And what he found was heartbreaking. Hannah had suffered a gunshot to the head, but she was still breathing when Colin got to her. So Colin applied pressure to her wound and flagged down another truck driver to assist, and this truck driver calls for police on the CB radio. After a while, another motorist stops and helps administer first aid. This man instructs Helmut and Roy to go to a nearby town to find help, and so they did. It was 7.36 p.m. when the constable received the call about the shooting, and he headed down the highway and parked himself somewhere to watch out for a blue Chevy Nova. Less than a minute after the officer parked, Helmut and Roy pull up beside him and explain to him what happened. The officer tells him helps on the way, and he asked if they could elaborate about what happened and for, you know, a better description of these men that they were looking for. All the while, this officer is hearing what they're saying, and he's just feeling like something's off. He was really surprised at how calm Helmut was considering he just watched his wife be shot in the head. So before long, an ambulance arrived to transport Hannah to the hospital, and Helmut and Roy rode to the police station in the back of the police car. The station wagon they'd been traveling in that evening was taken to the forensic lab to check for evidence. Helmut, who, as we said before, had made this decision to leave his church, felt compelled to call his pastor while Roy was taken for an interview. Once officers spoke with Roy, they took Helmut to the hospital to see what was going on with Hannah. Unfortunately, they were informed that Hannah had died of her injury at 8.52 p.m. Helmut acted as though he was devastated and sobbing, but he wasn't actually crying real tears. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. My toxic trait is that I have a hard time making decisions. Whether it's plans for dinner or buying new eyeglasses, I'm going to need some choices. While Warby Parker can't help me with plans for dinner, they can help me choose the perfect pair of glasses
1: thanks to their free home try-on program. I took the quick and easy quiz on the Warby Parker website to figure out what glasses I'd like to try. The great thing about Warby Parker is you actually get a free home try-on kit based on the results of your quiz and your input. I received my home try-on kit within a few days and was immediately struck by the great quality. I tried on all five pairs, wore them around the house, checked them out in the mirror, and made my decision. The crazy thing is the pair I landed on were not even the pair I assumed I would pick prior to receiving the kit. I loved being able to get my family's opinions, plus really get a chance to wear them around before making my decision. I chose the welty style, and they not only look great, but they feel great. That's right. Do what we did and head over to warbyparker.com
0: moms to get five pairs of glasses to try on at home for free. Warby Parker is committed to providing their customers with exceptional vision care online and in stores. They offer eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and even contact lenses. Plus their glasses start at just $95,
1: including prescription lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash moms. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I started my journey with
0: therapy when I was a teenager and sure, I didn't have to travel up the hill for five miles in the snow, but I did have to call a real person to schedule and then drive to the location, wait in a lobby and then meet face-to-face with the therapist. Thanks to BetterHelp though, I can still get all the benefits of
1: therapy without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. When you sign up for BetterHelp, you answer a few questions and based on your answers, you're given the option of several therapists that may be a good fit for you. You can look through their bios and even their reviews to find out who would be a good match, and then you can get started right away. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Whether you deal with stress, depression,
0: anxiety, or more, BetterHelp can connect you with someone who can talk to you about what you're going through. Just this week, my therapist with BetterHelp gave me one of those aha suggestions that I've never really thought about,
1: but makes so much sense that I was able to immediately start to implement in my life. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Moms and & Murder listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash moms. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash moms.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between,
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: And now back to the episode.
1: So before the break, we were talking about this horrific incident where Hannah Buxbaum has just been murdered on the side of the road after her husband, Helmut, has set up this uh, murder-for-hire contract. So according to Helmut's official statement, which he gave police while they were at the hospital, he was driving down Highway 402 with Hannah and Roy when he saw a car broken down and decided to stop and help them. He said that he believed the driver of the stranded vehicle was his neighbor at first, which is the reason why he pulled over. But then a masked man suddenly pulled Hannah from the car, and Helmut was sure that they were all going to be killed, so he said that he ran into the middle of the road waving his arms around. Helmut said he heard three shots, and then the killer fled with the other men from the stopped vehicle. While Helmut was at the hospital, he asked the doctor for a sedative numerous times, but wasn't given one until it was time for him to leave. But before Helmut was able to be released, the police wanted him to come down to the station and do just one more interview, because they weren't completely convinced by his first story. The officers told him not to take the sedative he'd been given until after the interview, but Helmut didn't listen. He took it anyway. It was almost 11 p.m. when Helmut and the officers arrived back at the station, and Roy was just finishing up his interview with the police as the others were arriving. Roy told a story that had a lot more detail than the story Helmut originally told. He said that while they were driving, he overheard his Uncle Helmut and his Aunt Hannah talking about a car on the side of the road that they saw coming up, and he heard them say that they thought it was their neighbor. So they stopped, a masked gunman approached the car, and according to Roy, the gunman actually put the gun to his head, to Roy's head, first, and then demanded money and jewelry. He said that he heard Hannah pleading with the gunman, telling him that she had five kids at home just before she was shot. Roy said the shooter hopped in the car, which had a covered license plate, and took off. He said that Helmut stayed next to the car and just said, oh my god, they shot her, and suggested that they went and got help, but he never went down and checked on Hannah. Then they flagged down the trucker. After hearing Roy's story, they asked Helmut to take a gun residue test before going over the story of the events one more time. He told the same story as before and it did seem to line up exactly with what Roy had said so they believed the stories and they let Helmut and Roy go home while they continued to search for the blue Chevy Nova Helmut met his pastor at home to break the news to the children once the kids were in bed that night Helmut went to his fallout shelter and did cocaine
0: meanwhile after the killers fled the crime scene they went to get cleaning supplies to clean out the inside of this Chevy Nova they show up at Gary's ex-wife's house and demanded that she not tell anyone they were there. The woman, Robin, had no clue what Gary and his friend Terry had just done. So once the car's cleaned out, they cover it with a tarp and tell Robin that someone would be coming by to pick it up. Immediately that, no. Immediately
1: no. I would be like, no, absolutely not. not.
0: <laughs> well, at the second you say, you can't tell anyone I was here, it's like, well, yeah. now I'm just paying yeah. attention to everything you're doing. <laughs> So this someone is a friend of Pat Allen and his girlfriend named Janet Hicks. So she picks up the car, takes it through the car wash, and then drives it 300 miles because they had rented this car and wrote out the application that they would be driving it that far. And the car actually ended up being returned three days late. So don't be suspicious. suspicious, (laughs) (laughs) So they leave Hannah's purse at Robin's house after stealing everything of value from the inside of it. They leave it above Robin's garage door, but they later come back for it and end up weighing it down in a nearby river. Gary and Terry then left and they headed to Gary's current girlfriend's house to take a shower before they're able to meet up with Pat Allen for drinks later. There are so many people involved in this at this point. So on the way to the bar, the perpetrators toss the murder weapon into the river. The next morning, everyone's anxious to get in touch with Helmut, who of course owes them a lot of money. So they go to James Barrett's house, call Helmut to set up a time to meet later that night. So Helmut really carried on as if it was a normal situation. He makes funeral arrangements for Hannah, and he really tries to keep all the attention off of himself. On July 6th, Helmut was going to meet up with Barrett and his girlfriend at the airport to give him money for the hit. He goes to multiple banks and withdraws small amounts from different accounts until he gathers up $13,000, and he also had to cash in one of those gold bars. The plan was to exchange this money in the bathroom, but when they arrive at the airport, they notice there's a police officer watching them, so they got nervous, and they decided to go to the van instead. So it's at the van that Helmut gives Barrett the $13,000, and he promises him he's gonna get him the other $7,000 soon. So Barrett and his girlfriend take the cash, they go to a hotel room, and they divide it up between themselves, Gary, Terry, and Pat Allen.
1: Doesn't Gary, Terry, and Pat sound like, I don't know, like three stooges? <laughs> It sounds like the Three Stooges,
0: but what does it sound like? Larry, Larry, and oh my gosh, it's the evening shade. I always forget this. Larry and my brother Larry, I'm getting this wrong. Somebody's going to be mad. One person's going to be mad and they're going to be over the age of 70.
1: (laughs) So it seems like things are going so far so good for these criminals, right? Well, it may have just been karma or bad vibes or whatever you want to call it, but things took a turn for the investigation later that very same evening. In a completely unrelated string of events, one of Barrett's other friends happened to get arrested that same day on an outstanding warrant. This guy has nothing to do with Hannah's murder or even anything to do with any of this. Right. But he got arrested. And so when this guy, his name is Randy Leslie, was taken into custody, he starts singing like a canary about all these other things he knows about. And so he told the officers that his buddy Barrett had been bragging about being involved in Hannah Buxbaum's murder. And that's when things really all started coming together. So remember that officer who pulled over the first time um, that the bump stopped to hey. help them um, when they were stranded that first time in the morning? Well, they had told that officer that everything was fine and then Hannah and Helmut drove off. But it wasn't until later that evening that the second attempt was made and that Hannah was actually killed. Well, that same officer who had stopped that day also was overhearing Randy Leslie talking about knowing the people responsible for the murder. And he suddenly put two and two together and realized that Helmut had actually stopped to help a stranded car twice in the same day, which was something that Helmut had never mentioned to them in his interviews. And that's a lot even for Canadians. Yeah, yeah. The that's a lot of, of that kindness are, for one day. <laughs> yes, odds of that are very slim. And honestly, if I stop for one car... I feel like I've done my due diligence and I'm not stopping for another car for a very long time. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Somebody uh, else can get that one. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so the police asked Helmut if the car that he stopped for in the morning was the same car that he stopped for in the evening. And he told him that he couldn't say whether or not it was the same car. On the same day that this revelation came out, the investigators found out that Helmut and Barrett were seen meeting at the airport by an officer and things started spinning out of control for these criminals from there. The next day, news about Helmut's severe cocaine and sex addictions came to light after someone called to report the tip anonymously. Another tip caller claimed that Barrett had been offered $20,000 to find a hitman and that it might have been Pat Allen who actually pulled the trigger. This set off a string of events in the investigation that linked Helmut to the other suspects. Phone calls were found that Helmut made to Pat Allen, as well as a phone number belonging to Debbie Barber, who was somebody that Barrett actually lived with, and Janet Hicks, who was Barrett's current girlfriend. Officers started to watch Debbie and Helmut's houses.
0: A funeral was held for Hannah on July 8th, which is very quickly, considering she was shot and killed on the 5th.
1: It seemed almost like Helmut was just trying to rush that along to me. Because he was the one taking care of all that. But yeah, he has a lot going on, but he seems like he's very concerned with getting the funeral out of the way. Right. So on that
0: same evening, a judge actually authorized a tap on Helmut's home phone and his work phone as well, as well as Barrett and Debbie's phones. So in one call, Debbie's overheard telling someone that Barrett set up a contract murder, but someone else pulled the trigger. Helmut must have been feeling the heat at this point because on July 12th, he sells even more of his gold bars for another $16,000. All he's going to have is tobacco up in that um, thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're
1: There's not going to be a survive, lot left. Not going to survive too long in there.
0: <laughs> no. So investigators told Helmut that they needed to see his bank account statements, and they end up finding out all about this money that he's been withdrawing. So using the film records to compare, they figured out that Helmut called Barrett right after making several large withdrawals. And as for Barrett, his ex, Debbie, was really getting sick of all this crap. It was around this time that she actually kicks him out of the house, and she decides to tell police everything she knew. Nothing like a woman scorned. Right. (laughs) So finally, after contacting numerous rental car locations, this blue Chevy Nova they've been searching for was found on July 19th, just two weeks after the shooting. It was learned that the car was returned by Pat Allen's girlfriend and that a man matching Pat's description is the one who picked up the car initially. On July 23rd, Helmut and Roy were brought in again for questioning. Helmut was taken to the Chevy Nova and asked if the car he stopped for both times was this car, if it was this Chevy Nova. He gets upset whenever he's asked to tell the story about the day again, though. He said he doesn't want to go through it again, but he tells him the same story he tells him the first several times. He's pretty consistent with that. So then they asked Helmut while he called Barrett in Florida back on July 5th. And Helmut says, you know, Barrett's my Coke dealer, so he calls him to get drugs. But when they confronted him about what he was doing meeting Barrett at the airport the next day, Helmut said he wouldn't answer any more questions without a lawyer. Wouldn't you just say buying the cocaine? Yeah, yeah. Paying like, my drugs. Yeah. <laughs> what <do> are <laughs> you, you think I was doing? <laughs> yeah. So Helmut was placed under arrest just a short time later.
1: Once Helmut was in custody, investigators asked Barrett about his visit to Florida. He admitted that the trip was paid for by Helmut, but he stuck to the cocaine story and said that was the reason he went. He told police he didn't remember why he met Helmut at the airport and said he didn't remember to almost every other question he was asked to. Barrett was also placed under arrest for the murder of Hannah, but he would later take a deal where he confessed to his part and accepted a lesser charge of conspiracy to commit murder. He ended up getting 10 years. The police interviewed the girlfriends of the men involved in the shooting, but they didn't really get anywhere. But Fauché's estranged wife, Robin, did admit that they brought the car to her house and that they had admitted to murdering Hannah. Fauché was actually planning to leave the country, but the police figured all of this out and they were able to arrest him just as he was about to take off. He already boarded the plane and everything. Oh
0: my gosh. it
1: just reminds me of like a movie where like the police coming onto a plane like as it's about to leave the runway and they were able to arrest him.
0: And then you get to sit by yourself. You don't have to share
1: um, (laughs) your seat next to somebody. So good for them. (laughs) (laughs) So he actually refused to speak to the police, and he maintained his innocence. But he eventually was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life with the possibility of parole in 15 years. Pat Allen was also arrested on August the 10th. He refused to talk, but later confessed for a plea deal and was sentenced to eight years. Terry Arms took a similar deal, except that he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and got a life sentence with parole possible after 10 years.
0: Helmut's trial began on December 16th, 1985. Prosecutors said that Helmut wanted to have Hannah killed because of the million-dollar life insurance policy that he had on her and because Hannah was standing in the way of his wild lifestyle even though he was actively having the lifestyle while she was still alive. Right. So to avoid rehab and his wife, Helmut decided to hire these hitmen to have her killed. The men who took these plea deals, Barrett, Arms, and Allen, all testified for the prosecution. Helmut's defense was that while it was true that Helmut liked drugs and sex workers— wasn't involved in hannah's murder and that the money that he withdrew to give barrett was for cocaine and not for murder i hate when my cocaine money, money and my murder <laughs> money gets confused they took it a step further and said it was barrett who wanted hannah gone because she was threatening to tell the police that he was a drug dealer so after 13 hours of deliberating the jury found helmut guilty on february 13th 1986 Which was a real bummer for him after he paid over $1 million for this high-profile attorney. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of gold bars. I mean, I guess
1: that's the gamble you take. (laughs) I
0: know. I bet there's no gold bars or tobacco left at the end of that. There's nothing left. mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So he was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. All of his appeals had been unsuccessful. Helmut actually spent his time in prison working as a janitor, and he was actually part of the prison literacy program. As you can imagine, he wasn't very well liked. Uh, He never really made friends, and he was kind of thought of as a troublemaker. He was constantly complaining about his living conditions, and he actually planned lots of escape attempts, but none were successful. Um, A few of his kids visited him in prison, but most of them moved to the U.S. and actually changed their names. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So Helmut died on November 1st, 2007 at the age of 68 from an undisclosed illness. He actually never admitted to having anything to do with Hannah's murder before his death. Um, We talked a little about Philip earlier in the story, Uh, Hannah and Helmut's son. He had moved to, I think, London and lived there, had changed his name. And just six weeks after he publicly stated he had forgiven his father for the role in his mother's murder, he died in 2014 of cancer.
1: Oh, man. Wow, this is – I just don't know. these. Some of these stories, i they're just so hard to believe. They just don't seem real. And this is one of them because it's hard – and there was a lot of factors going on in this story and things that, like, affect families very deeply and severely, right. like drug addiction and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, of course, that's really terrible. It's terrible that he had the stroke and, that, you know, that affected his ability right. to work. But he was a t- he was terrible before any of that stuff happened. So – it's just like, oh my gosh, but there's so much. And Hannah having to deal with all of that throughout their marriage and then yeah, losing her life the way that she did like that. It's just, it's awful. It's just, it's hard to believe that there are people out there who are capable of this kind of thing and who are willing to do this to somebody that, you know, their their own wife, the mother of their children. It's yeah,
0: terrible. Well, two things that blow my mind is one, that he set this up twice in one night. And And that the first time, remember how whenever he was in the hospital and he was like, God, I'll change my ways if you'll save me from this. It's kind of like, how in that moment didn't he say, hey, God, thank you. Um, I was having a lapse in judgment. I was going to kill my wife. I mean, it's more than a lapse in judgment. I'm going to take this as a sign and not go through with the second one because it actually ended up being a pretty good plan to even have his nephew there. And like, it seemed kind of believable if there hadn't been that one guy to say something, you know, like- Such small things had to come together. They might not have gotten caught. I mean, this wasn't the brightest group, but it might have been pretty tricky to get them.
1: You know what else upsets me, though, like with the nephew being there and stuff like that is messed up. Okay, so it's one thing like you're doing all this and planning it and that's already terrible and awful. But to then include an innocent person who now has to live with that experience for the rest of their life, like I I have no words for that. Yeah, I have no words for that
0: that and the fact that he calls his pastor after all this he's left the church he's not doing anything the pastor wants him to do and he's like you know who I want to call I want to call my pastor right just to make it just so gross just makes me so mad so terrible
1: terrible terrible
0: it is she was a very strong great woman woman, who just absolutely got dealt a very bad card uh with with this guy
1: yeah definitely Uh, But we're going to turn the page and go to last thing before we go because we know that not all stories from Canada are terrible like this one. In fact, I would say most stories from Canada are not terrible like this one.
0: (laughs) No. I mean, this is a definite exception.
1: All right. So what are we doing, Melissa?
0: What are we doing? So we were looking up, as we've mentioned several times in the story, Canadians, you guys are known for your kindness and not, like Mandy was saying, terrible crime. So we're just pulling up some kind of like fun, fun is it fun crimes? Fun crimes. yeah. <laughs> fun crimes. Um, and we're just going to read a couple back and forth to each other. Um, Mandy, do you want to start off or I can start off? Uh, you can go first. Okay. My first story is a goat was arrested after he walked into a Tim Hortons in Saskatchewan. He refused to leave. He was very unhappy. A goat. Oh, no. Arrested. Well, I mean, not really arrested, but a Canadian arrested. What is that? Can you be Canadian arrested? Yeah,
1: you, they get arrested. They get arrested. No, 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 but
0: I'm saying I don't think an actual goat can actually be arrested. Oh. But that <laughs> you're like, Melissa, do you know anything about the criminal justice system <laughs> anywhere? <laughs> But in a Tim Hortons, which I do know is like a very popular Canadian thing.
1: It is. It's like their equivalent of Starbucks. And they'll probably come to me. Be careful. Be careful. Yeah, I know. Because they're probably going to be like, wait, it's way better than Starbucks. And then the Starbucks people are going to be like, no, Tim Hortons is nothing compared to Starbucks. We have pissed off Tim Hortons people and chiropractors. Yeah, yeah. I like coffee, but I am going to go on the record and say that I am not picky about my coffee. So if I want a cup of coffee I will be just as happy getting a 99 cent cup of coffee from Wawa as I will from getting it and paying six dollars for it somewhere else at a coffee shop it just doesn't to me coffee is not one of those things that I want to go big or go home on what about water you you know how you're a water water. snob yeah you're such a water snob (laughs) you know how I am
0: with water I'm also not picky with coffee um if you give it to me I won't drink it yeah that's
1: (laughs) I That's have one it. one decision. Yeah. Okay, so I have one. So mine is three men sentenced for 18 million dollar Quebec maple syrup heist.
0: There's Yikes. nothing more
1: Canadian than a maple syrup heist.
0: I know. What? How how is there 18 million dollars worth of maple syrup? Oh my gosh, that also makes me sound smart.
1: I love maple syrup. I just want to also say um I've been having a really hard time lately, so I I know this doesn't count because technically it's not even syrup, but I eat a ton of sugar-free maple syrup like every single day. I put it in my oatmeal and um they haven't had any at the stores lately. So apparently, huh. yeah, and like I've no I know a lot of things have been kind of um touch and go like shortages at sure. the store, different things we can't find. Another thing I have a hard time finding is tater tots which I don't personally care, but the rest of my family does. Yeah, there's like a frozen potato problem. Like you can't buy tater tots right now. I mean, you can if you can find them. Yeah, but they also haven't had sugar-free maple syrup. So I feel like I am on the verge of a syrup heist if they don't restock my syrup soon.
0: (laughs) I will not be helping you with this unless we can double it up for a Coke Zero Zero cherry flavor. Yeah. then I am all in. (laughs) I love this story. So the most Canadian car thief ever returns a stolen vehicle with a full tank of gas. So I guess this person thought they were getting into their vehicle, but actually got into somebody else's vehicle, realized it, fills it up with gas, brings it back to the person. And that person even pays him back for the gas. Like, no problem. You stole my car and you put gas in here. Let me pay you some money. Wow. Never in Florida. Never in the US. It would
1: never. Nope. (laughs) Hashtag never. Okay. Here's one, Melissa. I hope that you will enjoy this one. Um, So here, I'm just going to read the headline because then you'll be like, okay. All right. $500,000 offered to catch Prince Edward Island's potato tampering terrorizer. The way my
0: eyes, like I noticed, were just darting back and forth with every (laughs) word you said, like, I know all those words, but I don't have a clue what you just said. What
1: happened? Okay, so this is so bizarre. So this, I'm reading this on vice.com. So, you know, but it says that like it's straight out of a Halloween urban myth. Somebody has been putting needles in PEI (gasps) potatoes. That was back in 2015. So I think you're safe now if you are from there.
0: (laughs) So what have they been doing with the potatoes? I truly did not grasp Somebody the was, title.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, so the title once again was. Explain 500- it to me like I'm five. <laughs> <laughs> the title was $500,000 Offered to Catch Prince Edward Island's Potato Tampering Terrorizer. So, oh, okay. Yes. It says, months after distressing reports emerged of someone inserting metal needles in Prince Edward Island's famous potatoes, the industry has raised the stakes, offering a $500,000 reward to help catch the culprit. That's terrifying. That and is mean, what our
0: parents had us terrified about. <laughs> and for Halloween when we were younger, but not everybody at was. Like, I know. I always but assume I, my
1: potatoes are safe.
0: No, let me tell you. Yeah, that's the way to get me though. Put it in my potatoes. Those are just a daily occurrence with me. Oh, this reminds me of. Remember whenever these were simpler times, but terrible times when people were licking bluebell ice cream, the tops of them when Ew, they would take it yeah. off. I can't forget that. My husband will buy bluebell. I'm like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I've, I haven't recovered. Oh my gosh, those are awful.
1: Okay, and then I just have one last one. Um, this one is very. Very Canadian as well. A British Columbia man politely asks a family of bears to leave his yard. He told them to have a good day and asked them to leave. Aww. Yeah. He just nicely said, I need you guys to go. I hope you enjoyed my yard. Have a good day. Like verbally said that to the bears. I can just not picture any American doing that.
0: No, I saw the video. One of my favorite videos in the past year is the guy who like yeeted a mountain lion out of his yard whenever it came after his wife. Did oh, you ever see that? No. He's like somebody's running by and he's like, hey, how are you? And he's like holding like a casserole or something, puts it on the the hood of his car and oh, then no. a mountain lion comes after his wife and you just see him grab it over his head and just literally. Oh my god, Yeet it as the kids say over his, it was wild. I mean, th- I'm sure the cat is fine, but it was just like a, like, whoa, who does that? So it was, uh, but he started very nice, but he would, the American came out on him and he yeeted it.
1: All righty. Well, I think that is it for this week, Melissa.
0: Yeah, let's give ourselves a little
1: voice rest. We'll be back. All right. Yep, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast.
0: Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode.